Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. We pray, Lord, that, you, that we would honor you with all that we say and think this morning. Help us, Lord, to focus. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome back. I caught up with Ken Wegren for just a minute this morning, and uh, he said you were all very good students last week. So I appreciate uh, Ken filling in for me, and it's good to be back with all of you as uh, you're trying to realize what time it is, and it is the right time to be here right now, but it seems really early, doesn't it? This, today we focus on God's written word. Our big word of the week is a Greek word of the week. Now, I've never studied Greek, but what I will, uh, I, this is a fairly important Greek word, and it also will represent the first blank on your handout. And theopneustos is a word that means breathed out by God or spoken by God. It's only used once in the entire New Testament, and you likely can figure out where that is. Anyone want to take a guess where the word theopneustos is used in, in the New Testament? It's actually 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God or spoken by God. So we'll talk a little bit about that today and we'll talk about the apneustos a little bit more next week as well. But breathed out by God is the definition of the apneustos and that's the first blank on your handout. Um, today we are on week three of six and we're focusing on God's written word. So we'll talk about how do we know that we have the written words from God that we're supposed to have and will use scripture to help us do that because we can't use anything above scripture to verify scripture because there is nothing. So we'll use scripture to prove that the words we have truly are God's words and they're all, we have all of them. So if you look at our outline at a high level, we'll focus on the permanence of God's word just for a few minutes at the beginning. We'll take a look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament written words. And then we'll talk about the canon of scripture. That's our focus. That's God's instruction for his church, for his people, the canon. How do we know that we have it? How do we know that there's not something else that we're missing? Is there some Book of Mormon equivalent that we're supposed to have that we don't have right now? Uh, and, and, and so we'll focus on that near the end of our time. Now where I want to start today is a graphic that I think we've used before. It is this progression of God's Word from His audible divine voice going to men primarily, but not exclusively, uh, prophets and apostles, and ultimately uh, becoming the written Word. The question that I have for you today and the way to start the class is, do you truly believe that God's written word, as we have it, is, has the same power, has the same lordship attributes as when his audible voice spoke the words the first time? Let me give you an example. Let's say tomorrow I had some way of knowing that God would speak to you audibly at five in the morning. Let's just, let's just say for a minute that I had the ability to know that, and it was, in fact, true. If I told all of you, hey, tomorrow morning, God will be in your living room to speak in an audible voice to you, and you believe me and I had the authority to say that, most likely you would be in your living room at 5 tomorrow morning. In fact, you might not sleep. You'd probably set the alarm on your phone. You'd set it early. You wouldn't hit snooze and you'd be there to li listen to God speak to you with an audible voice. Well, let's say, for example, instead of saying that, I said to you, hey, as a, as a faith and life, truth and life class, 
what if we instead all agree to get up at five every morning and read our Bibles? Then suddenly, would you be as enthusiastic about getting up? Would you set your alarm at f for 4.30 to make sure you were really up with the rest of the group in their living rooms across the city, across the area, reading God's Word? Would you, uh, would you take it as serious? So if you say, well, if you, heard, if you were in your living room listening to God's audible voice, would you raise your hand and say, God, will you stop speaking for a minute so I can check Instagram? Would you burp in the middle of him talking? In other words, do you take the reading of God's written word, either out loud or quietly reading it to yourself, as seriously as you do as if God's audible voice could be heard and perceived in your, in your head and, and, th and through your ears? Most of us, I think, honestly would answer no. But you know, one, one take-home message that I want to emphasize every week in this class is when we have God's written word, we have his presence with us. Wherever his word is read, he is present. And we have the same authority, the same uh, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence with his written word as we do if he were physically speaking to us because with his written word, he is speaking to us. So something we want to continue to emphasize is there is no loss of fidelity of God's word as it goes from his divine voice, as it's given to prophets and apostles, and, and ultimately in our hands today as the written word. So why have written words from God? This, these may be questions you've never asked and never even thought about, but why not just have events as revelation? We talked about events, uh, probably it was last week. Uh, memories tend to fade over time, right? I will tell a story. My, my sister, I have a sister who's nine years younger than I am, and she has a huge scar on her forehead. And that scar on her forehead is a result of my brother and I throwing her from one twin bed in our bedroom to another, one of us having bad aim, and we threw her into that metal rail that holds all the wood slats. We split her head wide open. I tell that story when she's around occasionally, but she corrected me the last time I told the story. Well, no, this was 40 years ago, 45 years ago. I thought I had the story right. She told me, no, I was there. This is actually what happened. So the stories where I was present, I don't always get right. So think about memories fading over time. Once everyone dies who witnessed the event, the recollection is secondhand. There's never, there's, at that point, there is no person who was there to witness what happened. Words are written down. They're even passed from generation to generation. So you can see, practically speaking, even in earthly, worldly terms, that there is great value in having God's Word written down. Studies have shown, and we won't focus on it in this class, that after a month, after an event happens, we often retain only 20% of what happened, even though it's very close to 100% at the very moment that the event happened. There are studies that show that, that a month later you do this. That's why witnesses are not always helpful to us uh, when, they, when they witness a crime, because their memories tend to fade over time. So if you look at our outline in a little bit more detail, we'll break down God's Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, the next blank on your handout is the first topic in the outline, which is the permanence of God's Word. The word there is permanence in, in yellow. And then we'll look at that canon of Scripture. So this is nothing more than a more exploded view of the outline I showed you a minute or two ago. And so we've got, we've got a lot to cover today. We want to go ahead and get that going. Okay, a quote from our author, Dr. Frame. Divine revelation is not just a momentary experience given to an individual. 
So anytime God has spoken to anyone, the purpose of that conversation was never just for the person that it was spoken to, who it was spoken to. The purpose there was for the people of generations after that individual to retain and have access to what God said to that person. Uh, we will not read through all these passages, but, but what I want to make a point on by sh in showing you the next several passages is that permanence was a principle throughout history even before anyone, ultimately Moses, wrote down the beginnings of what we know today as the Bible. So if you go back to uh, God telling Noah to get out of the ark, ultimately Noah builds an altar to the Lord. The altar is meant to be remembrance, the sense of permanence of what God did for his people by saving them, building this ark, so they would not be destroyed with the flood. Another example right after that is God sets a bow in the cloud to be a sign of the covenant. Now you could say a rainbow isn't permanent, it goes away when the rain stops, but every time there's a rainbow, we're given that same reminder. So I would argue that actually is permanence. There's a, as Christians, we're to look at rainbows and not think about homosexuality, but we're to think about God keeping his promises, including the promise to never flood the earth again. Abram leaves his land from Haran with his belongings, and uh, he, as the Lord speaks to him about giving him land, he builds an altar there to remember what God said. These are marks of permanence, not the same as God's written word, but a sense that even pre the writing of the canon, that, that God intended his work to be re-recorded permanently. And then finally, another example of Abram building an altar to the Lord. So we, we see permanence displayed even before Scripture. The altars are less than written revelation, but they indicate the patri patriarch's desire and God's to leave a permanent witness to God's covenantal words. Now, God's covenants are with families, not only individuals. He doesn't renew the covenant individually with each new member, but he has recipients of the covenant words whose job it is to preserve those words and to pass them on to later generations. So this, again, this idea of permanence is we are to record what God has done for previous generations so that we learn from it and we are aware of it. So you get this sense of, of a written word being important even before the words are written. In Scripture itself, God ensures the sovereignty of his revelation, not by making it momentary and evanescent, but by establishing it as a permanent part of the human landscape, like the pillars and altars of the patriarchs. God commissioned Israel to put the book of the law in the holiest part of the tabernacle. It's a reference there to Deuteronomy 31:26, And to have the camp commandments read publicly to the nations as God's witness against Israel's sins later in Deuteronomy. Actually, earlier in Deuteronomy. The permanent law of God maintained God's sovereignty over his people. We have laws, we have civil laws as a society. What if we didn't write them down? Think about it. Permanence makes sense. Written word makes sense. Uh, and then the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. From Isaiah 40, verse 8. All right, so now we're going to start breaking down section by section in Scripture, God's written word. And we'll start with the generations. I think this is fairly interesting. I won't spend a lot of time on it because we don't have a lot of time. But you have in all those chapters in Genesis, in 2, 5, 6, 10, 11, 25, 19, 36, and 37, a mention of generations. Have you ever thought about how many different times in Scripture uh, we, we are given lists of generations? How did Moses, thousands of years later, 
end up being able to retain all this as he penned the first five books of the Bible. He could have had direct divine revelation. This is a time where he wasn't alive, yet he knows all these generations. There could have been an oral tradition. There could have been uh, generation after generation who just kept passing down, hey, this is the genealogy, this is where we came from. Or there could have been some sort of written source. We really don't know. But for whatever reason, God ordained that we'd have those generations noted. So the next blank on your handout is the generations. And then the bottom line, God intended the stories of Noah, Abraham, and others to be permanently available to his people, eventually in written form. In other words, God sovereignly ordained that those things were to be recorded for all of us. Next, we have the covenant documents, the next point from our outline. God communicates with Israel directly through the prophetic words of Moses. Can I ask someone to read Exodus 24, 12, please? Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. Okay, so we have these documents being given by God to Moses. Uh, and then Exodus 31, 18. Can I ask someone to read that, please? Now, there's probably no better verse in Scripture than Exodus 31, 18 to make the case that what we have as the Bible is God's written word. In this case, he's not only the author of the word, he's the publisher of it. And we see an example of his finger actually writing these commandments in the stone. So, he, he's, again, he's an author and a publisher in this case. It's his actual handwriting, if you will. All right, we next have written prophecy in Scripture. Prophets after the time of Moses and Joshua also produced written documents setting forth the words that God gave them. This may all seem intuitive to you. This may be something you don't think you need to be proven, have proven to you. But we'll spend each week building the case for the importance of God's word. And the hope is that you walk away from the class with a, with a new hunger to be in God's word and to be studying it. Because, because we call it God's word, but do we really think of it as his word? Then the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebrechiah. Jebrechiah. That's Isaiah 8, 1 and 2. So in other words, God is constantly telling his men, his prophets and apostles, to write down what he's been saying. Sometimes the words were written down so that a later generation would be more attentive and will take Israel's past disobedience as cautionary. So this is the example that I've used before, that much, and we won't read this today, but much of what Isaiah wrote as a prophet was to a people who wouldn't listen to him. So think about how frustrating that would be. Those of you who are parents can probably relate to this. That at times you are saying things and absolutely no one is listening to what you are saying. And so, but, but unlike being a parent, Isaiah was writing down the Holy Spirit's words inspired by the Holy Spirit for a group of people who would not listen to him, but so that it would be written down so others later would. If your words are not written down, where's the benefit to the people after? So here's another case for God's word being written down, is that the people that they were spoken to ignored it, largely ignored it, but others later would listen. Uh, Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. That was the posture of the people who Isaiah was speaking to. 
But next we have the wisdom literature in, in Scripture. It's, it's Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And these things presuppose written revelation from God. So again, we are using God's Word to prove that God's Word is God's Word, because there's nothing else we can use. Every word of God is tested, it says in Proverbs 30. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, or He will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. One of many places in Scripture that says, don't change what God has said. And then in Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes, the words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. So this passage weaves in the fact that men speak things, and they may seem like simply the words of men, but when they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, we actually have God's word given to people, and, and Solomon in Ecclesiastes speaks to that. Let's, let's focus for a minute on respect for God's words in the Old Testament. I know the print, there's a lot of words there. It's maybe a little bit smaller for those in the back, but could I ask any, someone to read this passage from Deuteronomy 4, please? Jason, thank you. From the back with no glasses on. Nice work there. Good. Okay. All right. Um, how many times, and, and we've been reading through Joshua and now into Judges as a family, and how many times in Scripture when a man becomes a leader or when he's at the end of his time and near death as a leader, does he tell people, make sure you follow what God's Word says, right? Those, we, we, none of us know if we'll have last words to give to our families because if, if we don't know when we're going to pass away. But isn't that the word you'd want to give to your family if you had one more conversation with you? Follow God's word. Do what his word says. Follow it. How many different times in Scripture do we see a call to listen to what's being said and how good and how helpful those words are? So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. There are clear benefits for following God's word. Okay, how about some help with Deuteronomy 7, 11? Real big print here. Okay, just one of many commands in Scripture to follow Scripture. And here's another example from Josh, the beginning of the book of Joshua. If I could ask for a volunteer to read this. Very good. So elsewhere in Scripture, it says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here we have connected meditation, which is 
by definition, using your heart and your mind, right? You sit there, it's what I look for from my kids. When they're five years old, I'm hoping they learn how to read. So good, you can start reading the Bible now. You're five or six years old, you learn how to read. When I'm, what I encourage my children to then start doing is meditating on God's Word, which is a whole different process and much harder to teach, right? It's not, did you read your Bible today? And you get yes, and somebody checks a box somewhere because we asked them to do it. And that's good, it's a great start. But what did you learn that you read today, right? That's, you start asking your kids questions about meditating on God's Word. So what were you thinking about after you read God's Word today? We're called right here in Scripture at the transition from Moses to Joshua leading Israel. Reference to Moses, God saying, I gave these words to Moses, follow them. It speaks to the cause and effect. You'll, you'll have success, make your way prosperous, you will have success. There's cause and effect of meditating on God's Word, and then ultimately out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaking, the word of the law, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. When you're giving a friend or a family member advice, is the word of God one of the first things that comes out of your mouth in some, some form or another? In other words, did you spend so much time meditating on God's word, not knowing you're gonna have a hard conversation with somebody, that when it comes time to have that conversation, there's nothing but God's word coming out of your mouth because that's what you've been meditating on. Or have you been meditating on psychobabble or social media or what the world says is right? Right, if you're meditating on God's word and someone comes up to you either because they ask your advice or, or they need your advice, sometimes they don't want it unsolicited, that nothing but God's word comes, or the principles of God's word comes out of your mouth. All right, Joshua 23, 6. Could I have some help with, uh, with this verse, reading it for me? Okay, so, so we've just gone through several admonitions. Remember to read God's Word. Don't forget. Follow it. Do what it says. Meditate on it. And, and it. It almost seems like a drumbeat, a hammer of, hey, you're offline. Don't go from the right to the left. Stay on focus. Stay on course. And, and it, it sounds very regimented, what we've recently read, right? Okay, I'm going to change gears on you for just a second. Everybody lost an hour of sleep. Everybody's more tired than usual, right? All right, William Rosenberg. William Rosenberg, the 19, late 1940s, started a restaurant. What he learned quickly that was over 40% of his revenue came just from donuts and coffee. So he decided, I'm just going to have a restaurant that focuses on donuts and coffee. He changed the spelling of the word donut. It used to be D-O-U-G-H-N-U-T. He changed the word to donuts. Now when you go to Dunkin', it's not even called Dunkin' Donuts anymore. It's just called Dunkin'. He took the word donut. They took the word donut off. Time to make the donuts is the next blank in your handout. When he wrote his autobiography, he called it Time to Make the Donuts. I'm not going to speak of anyone's age in this room, but who remembers the commercials, Dunkin' commercials, where it's time to make the donuts? I'm seeing a few hands go up, all right? Every pop culture illustration I use as I get older becomes less and less effective because there's more people who weren't alive to do it. Jason, your hand should be up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, in the late, very late 1970s, early 1980s, Dunkin' Donuts created a marketing campaign with a guy named Fred the Baker. And back in the day, where a few of us were alive, they used to actually make the donuts in the Dunkin' Donuts store. They would make them there. You'd look, and there'd be a kitchen in the back, and there'd be a huge mixer. And the the the, the bottom line for the donut thing was that Fred had to get up several times a day 
You can't see it there, but his clock says 3.30. It's the time it feels like right now. It feels like it's 3.30 in the morning to us right now, right? So Fred would get up at all times of the day and night to make donuts. And the theory was they were, Duncan was competing against grocery stores that would just have their donuts trucked in. And they would only have five kinds, and he had like 35 or 40 kinds of donuts. And he was making them all the time. So if you went to Dunkin' Donuts, you were getting fresh donuts. So for those of you who were around back in the day, how would Fred say, say that line in the commercial? Can anybody help me? Time. He always sounded tired, didn't he? A couple of classes ago, I had somebody, a young couple, come up to me after the class and say, well, I'd feel guilty going to a place where the guy was up all the time making donuts. So you're missing the point. This guy would get up all hours of the day and night, make donuts, and he'd say, time to make the donuts. So there were other references to, to, to restaurants when, in the 1980s. When, um, and so there was a lady named Clara Pella, an older lady, Clara Pella. And she, she was always say, where's the beef? Right? So you'd see these commercials end up in the popular culture and presidential campaigns and whatnot. So when you were in college and you had an 8 o'clock class and you, you have to get up early and your alarm would go off at 7.15 or 7.30, you'd get up in the 80s and say, time to make the donuts. And that was a reference to being tired and doing something very early in the morning. So why did I tell you all that? Oh, by the way, this was such a popular advertising campaign that when they hired a new advertising agency in 1997 and they retired this character, they actually had a parade in Boston where the actor who played Fred the Baker walked down the street in a parade and it was a retirement parade for Fred the Baker. That's how big this ad campaign was if you were around then. So why bother? Our approach to reading scripture, even though I've just shown you several slides commanding you to read, obey, meditate on scripture, our approach should never be Fred the Baker's approach to making donuts. We should never wake up and say, uh, time to read God's Word, it's 5 a.m. This was the tone of Fred the Baker the whole time when he had to make donuts. No, our approach should not be that it's drudgery or it's a command that we just have to blindly follow. Our approach for respect for God's Word in the Old Testament should be what we see in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. It is not time to read God's Word. It is Oh, how I love your law. It is with great joy. It's a privilege that we're even allowed to have breath this morning and how heart beating to be able to say, I get to read God's word today. I love his law. I am be meditating on it today. We should be enthusiastic and excited about that. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. Take it out of the context of Scripture. If I came up to you and I said, I got something that'll make you wiser than your enemies. You'll own your enemies. They'll be yours. You'll have more insight than even the people who are teaching you. You will understand more than people a lot older than you. You'd say, I'd like that. Well, right here. Meditate on God's Word all day long. The promise is right here in Psalm 119. It should never be considered drudgery like getting up to make donuts. It should be something we look forward to and talk about our love for his law. All right, we're moving through the outline here. We're getting closer. Jesus' view of the Old Testament. So we can take a look at New Testament passages, words spoken by Jesus when he was walking on the earth, to give more authority to the Old Testament, right? Let's take a look at some of those. And your next blanks on your handout is Jesus validates through his word the authority of the Old Testament is God's written word. So the words of Jesus himself in the New Testament help us here. 
he regularly and intentionally acts and speaks in such a way to fulfill Scripture. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Well, we cut off the passage there, but Jesus constantly, regularly, was simply doing things that fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took infirmities and carried away our diseases. So it was ordained that he would be on earth for a time to actually fulfill everything that was said in the Old Testament. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So again, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, or for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus aligns his, his, his actual words with those of Moses, giving validity to Moses in the Old Testament. And he calls upon the Pharisees who claim to believe Moses and say, well, you believe Moses, but you don't believe me, which was really saying you don't believe Moses either. The apostles, if you keep going further into the, the New Testament, cite the Old Testament with phrases connoting authority, such as it is written. So what you see here is the... Um, uh, well, yeah, this is where I want to stop for a minute. What, what's very interesting, and there's a book by B.B. Warfield called The Oracles of God, where at certain times in Scripture, the word God and the word Scripture are used interchangeably. Now, you go back to our sign on the building, right? Christ the Word. We say that we believe that the very Word is God Himself, which is a hard thing to understand. But here's one more place, a couple more places in Scripture that make the case. First of all, your blank there is no distinction. The next blank in the handout, the quote from B.B. Warfield, is that in one of these classes of passages, the scriptures are spoken of as if they were God. In the other, God is spoken of as if he were the scriptures. In the two together, in the two together God and scriptures are brought into such conjunction as to show that in the point of directness of authority, no distinction was made between them. So again, stay with me. We'll go to a few passages here. The word God and the word Scripture are often used interchangeably in Scripture to, to note that they mean the same thing, giving the ultimate authority, right, to, to Scripture. So this is Galatians 3.8, and it's a reference. The bold print you see here is a reference to Genesis 12.3. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Now, that was God speaking, if you go back to the reference in Genesis 12, 3. But the word used here in Galatians is the Scripture. It could just as easily say, God, foreseeing that he would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel. But it says the, the, the Scripture instead. Yet, in Genesis 12, there was no written Bible. It was God speaking to Abraham, right? So you see where the word Scripture, there could have just as easily been God. Okay, so the, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, 
to demonstrate my power to you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So Romans 9.19 verse, it's a reference to Exodus 9.16. Did the, did the word of God, did the Bible itself speak to Pharaoh or was it God speaking to Pharaoh? Well, it's a trick question because they're one and the same. But the, ver, the, the term used in Romans 9.19 is for the scripture says to Pharaoh. It was God speaking to Pharaoh through Moses, right? To demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed through the whole earth. Scripture and God used interchangeably at times in, in Scripture. And then this one's very interesting. Now, the first two were God as if he were Scripture. Here it's Scriptures as if it were, were God. So this is Acts 4, 24 and 25. Stay with me on this. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage and do the peoples devise futile things? So the block letters here is a reference to Psalm 2.1, but this is Luke writing Acts chapter 4. So it says, by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David. Think about that for a second as we go to the psalm. That's, that's the psalm. Nowhere in the Psalms does it say, God told me to say this. Okay, now we know that all scriptures breathed out by God. But it doesn't say, God told David to write this down. Yet when you go back to the Acts passage, it says, through by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said. So this is the New Testament, the book of Acts, giving validity and authority to the Old Testament by saying that was the very word of God himself. Again, these may be things that are just intuitive to you, but I think it's important to go to Scripture to prove that out. All right, and then here's our theopneustos, right? 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17. And that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. All right, let's take a look at another passage. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard that, uh, this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So this is not Peter referencing a specific Old Testament passage, but he references all of the books of prophecy here in verse 20, saying, no prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So there, Peter takes us back to all the prophecy written, and even Elijah, Elijah in, in, in other books that are not prophetic books specifically, to make the case that prophecy is God's very word. All right, so let's move forward. Now let's take a look at the New Testament. Now we used a lot, so, so our, next, our next blank there is written. The New Testament is God's written words. 
What I just did in the last several slides was went to New Testament references to the Old Testament to say, well, I'm using the New Testament to prove the authority of the Old Testament. Using the New Testament to verify the validity of the New Testament is a little bit harder because there's no single New Testament text that teaches the authority of the New Te Testament as one complete document. Think about it. As these men were composing all these, what we know now as the New Testament, none of them knew what the others were writing necessarily. Some, some did, but that wasn't universal. Nor did anyone say, you know, John didn't get to the end of the book of Revelation and finish it and say, oh, New Testament's done now, right? Nobody was given that, that knowledge. So that shouldn't surprise us that we can't use the New Testament the same way we just used it to prove the Old Testament. The New Testament could not speak of itself as a completed collection because when the New Testament writers wrote, the collection was still incomplete, right? So you have this sense that a bunch of men inspired by the Holy Spirit are writing all these books, but none of them really knows when it's done, and some of them don't know what the other one's writing. So it's a little bit of a different process. But you start with Simon Peter, right? He, he spoke to Jesus and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So we have, if we have Peter in the moment acknowledging the authority of Jesus' words. But let's, let's dig in a little deeper. First of all, we know that Jesus told the apostles to remember his words. And remembering involves writing down, right? But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So this is a, it'll be a work of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit when men are given inspired words, and it's a work of the Holy Spirit when we read those words and can understand them. The documents themselves claim that they have full authority over their recipients. So again, we're using the New Testament here to prove the validity, the authority of the New Testament. This is Paul writing to the Colossian church. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Now, we don't have a second letter as part of the canon. But, but Paul tells them to read these letters in the midst of the congregation. Obedience to Paul's letters was a matter of discipline. So there is real authority here, right? If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So there was a call to discipline for those who didn't listen to the word of Paul. Obedience to his letters was a matter of discipline, as I said. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So this is Paul in his first, first letter to the Corinthian church, speaking of the fact that some consider themselves prophets and to be speaking God's word. They need to be recognizing what, what, that, what Paul is writing is the word of God. Parts of the New Testament were recognized as scripture even when the New Testament was still being written. This is an interesting point. In 1 Timothy 5, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So these block letters that we're used to seeing anytime the New Testament makes a reference to the Old Testament, that's a reference to Deuteronomy, as a quote of Deuteronomy 25.4. You shall not, not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. But then what he does is goes and quotes, so this is Paul writing to Timothy, and he quotes the writing of Luke. So if you go to Luke 10, 7, 
the laborer is worthy of his wages is a direct quote from that. Now, it has the regular lettering there because only the block letter is used only when the New Testament makes a reference to the Old Testament. But if you go back to the beginning of verse 18, it says, for the scripture says blank and blank. So you actually have, P, uh, you have Paul calling Luke 10 scripture. See why I went through all that? You have an Old Testament reference to Deuteronomy, a New Testament reference to Luke 10, 7. And there is actually Paul writing to, to Timothy and calling Luke's writing scripture. So you see the authority of the New Testament there established by Paul. And then this is Peter's writing. In regard, the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So he speaks of the writing of Paul, a man he did not always agree with, and he calls Paul's writing, and he, and he speaks to how people are ignoring Paul's writing and says they distort like they do the rest of the scriptures. So by calling Paul's other, other, the rest of the scriptures, he's saying that Paul's writing is scripture as well. All right, we're going to end with the canon today. That is, well, let me just go through the slides. I'm jumping ahead here. The canon is, is nothing more than the body of writing that Paul has given to rule the church. The blank there is rule. So this is that ultimate question I talked about at the beginning. How do we know that we have God's word? All of it, we don't have more than we need. We don't have less than we need. The list of New Testament books accepted by the church's canon was a matter of debate for the first four centuries. True statement. However, by 170 AD, a, book, a, a collection of books called the Muratonic, Muratorian Fragment contained a list of New Testament books that are very close to the list that we employ today. At the Protestant Reformation, seven books called Deuterocanonical. Deuterocanonical means late canon or additional canon by Roman Catholics and considered apocryphal by Protestants were removed. This is the time of Luther. Also, additions to Esther and Daniel were removed. These appeared in the Septuagint, but not in the original Hebrew. So the the Bible, the books of the Bible that were kept in the tabernacle did not include these seven books or the additions to Esther and Daniel. And, and Frame makes a reference there that he doesn't want to go into this too deeply, but then he kind of goes into it deeply. So the Old Testament are the books acknowledged by the Jews in the time and place of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus cites texts from what we think of as the Old Testament. He never cites texts from the other seven books that are, that are apocryphal. He just doesn't do it. They, they, weren't, known, they weren't known as, as the canon at the time. And then uh, historian Josephus says the only books kept in the temple before its destruction were the books recognized as canonical. It's something I've already spoken to. All right, how about the New Testament? The New Testament might seem at first blush to be more difficult to establish as canon or non-canon, since no inspired New Testament writer could refer to the New Testament writings as complete. So we have Jesus only referencing non-apocryphal books in the Old Testament. So we, kinda, we have different ways to establish the authority of the Old Testament. The New Testament was this time of all these men writing these books inspired by the Holy Spirit, with none of them being able to say, yeah, these are the books that are real. There were tons of church controversies in the first several hundred years 
They included doctrinal issues, the Trinity, the person of Christ, but really there weren't arguments about the canon and not the New Testament. And uh, at 367, Athanasius published the canon with no opposition. There wasn't a fight by 367 AD. An agreement on the New Testament has been more unanimous than the Old Testament. So for example, those seven books that Roman Catholics and Anglicans, I think, recognize as canon, those are all in the Old Testament. Catholics and Protestants are in perfect alignment on what the New Testament is. And then apostolic authority exists for all but Mark, Luke, and Luke's authority was established by the, by the apostles. The book of Acts, again written by Luke. Hebrews, who we don't really know the author to, James and Jude, brothers of Jesus, and you say, well, that, that should speak to authority, right? But most of the New Testament has apostolic authority behind it. Ultimately, and this is our answer to a lot of these classes, ultimately at, we end with, we trust God that he will make his voice known to his sheep. So in the end, Scripture never contradicts itself. So we can look to Scripture and know that it's Scripture because it aligns itself with other things said in Scripture. And we, we trust that ultimately God in His sovereignty will make to us known to us the words that He would have us know. We are right at the top of the hour. We covered a lot of material today on, on a day when everybody's a little bit drowsy, so thank you for your patience. You can grab a donut on the way in. You can also grab a donut on the way out. And for those who didn't see you come in, they don't know that you grabbed one on the way in. So feel free to grab another one on the way out. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. Lord, we say that we believe that the Bible is your written word, but sometimes we don't act that way. Lord, I pray that we would never think of reading your word as drudgery, that we would never think of it as, a, as an obligation with no joy, but that we would think of it as something that you call us to do that is a great source of joy with great benefit, giving us wisdom beyond our teachers, giving us a victory over our enemies. Father, I pray for the rest of our morning worship. I pray, Lord, that you would be with Pastor David as he preaches, be with those leading us in worship, those leading us in confession of sin. I pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.